Python is a is a really cool language in that sense that um, first of all it's quite easy to use, and second of all there's a big community of people that that are posting their solutions to different problems online. So if you want to do something, chances are someone else has done it before you, and you can take inspiration from what they've done. And then the second part of it, as you mentioned, AI is is you know racing teams gather a lot of data. You have a lot of data from the car itself. You have a lot of data from simulation. Um, if you go testing, you can fit extra sensors to the car. And so you have a lot of data and then it's quite difficult to figure out what to do with it. University doesn't teach you how to be an engineer, but it teaches you how to think like an engineer. Cool. Then we can kick things off, Joel. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Really cool. So yesterday I was actually watching the engine breaking podcast. So something I, I yeah. uh, accidentally found because on Twitter, I announced that you will be on my show and then people commented, start commenting and they actually said that you were on this show. So anyone watch, uh, want to delve a little bit more into technical details, they have to check out this podcast because it's really, really good and you make a ton of jokes. So it's really, really recommendable at uh, that podcast. Really, really nice one. Um, today yeah, we'll talk about, a little bit about, yeah, really cool. Sorry. I like the show a lot and it was over an hour, I think. Yeah, I was surprised that I um, that I don't I don't have TikTok. It's I haven't I haven't got into that latest uh, craze. But I was yeah. surprised people telling me that I was trending on TikTok because of a clip of that video where I talk about being escorted out of the office from Red Bull or something. And then uh, from I, then on, I had like twenty people telling me about that. It was really funny. <laughs> yeah, maybe you you can talk about that story in in the podcast. Really interesting. So uh, I will talk about your journey a little bit. How you became an F one race engineer if that's a correct title, but maybe to kick things off, maybe talk a little bit about yourself, Joe, who are you? What are you doing currently? And uh, what's your purpose in life? Ooh, that's that last <laughs> one. This is a, uh, might take longer than an hour to answer. Um, I, my name is Roger Nett. I'm, uh, I'm an engineer. I, I'm from Portugal. I grew up, grew up in Lisbon, moved to the UK to study engineering, aerospace engineering. Then somehow I ended up working in, in, um, in F1, uh, I I didn't really go into my degree hoping to get into motorsports, but I had the chance to go to the US for a year abroad, and there I, I did what in the US they call Formula SE, in Europe they call Formula Student, and it's essentially a student project where you design and, and build the race car as, as a small team. And I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that more than the rest of my degree, basically. So when I came back to the UK, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I got lucky to, to get a, a job at McLaren as an aerodynamicist. So working on kind of the car development from, from the aerodynamic side. Uh, a few years after that, I moved to Red Bull. Um, I did that for a couple of years on the F1 side. Then I ended up working on the, on the Valkyrie as well. Um, and after that, I, I decided that I wanted to learn a little bit more about the rest of the car and vehicle performance and vehicle dynamics and, and such. And so I kind of moved into race engineering and at a lower levels, I started in Formula 3, then moved to LMP2 for a bit. And then last season, I was a, a race engineer in Formula 2. And uh, now I'm, uh, yeah, figuring around what's happening next year and uh, what I'm doing next. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Really cool. I think you're a, free, you're a freelance engineer. How did you get into the, the world of freelancing in the first place? Is it more freedom for you? Uh, yes, it's it's. Uh, it, first of all, it allowed me to move back to Lisbon for a bit, which was obviously nice because being around my family, I, I'd been away for over ten years, 
so that's being around my family and and back back home basically um so it'd be good to do that it was good to do that for a bit um it's a it's a different kind of working environment completely because you kind of mostly you know working from home between the races but then it's very intense trackside work during the races during in the events so it's kind of uh, it's good to switch between the two environments it, it, you know instead of being in an office nine to five for a whole year um this is kind of it's a lot more dynamic you know it's it's you come out of the race weekend thinking about things to improve you sit down and you improve them and you go back into the next race weekend and you kind of see the effect of that on, on your performance and on, on, on how easy it is to do your job. Um, but how did I get into it? Uh, I wanted to get into race engineering. I didn't specifically think that freelancing, uh, you know, was the way to go. But I quickly realized that that's how it works for the most part. I mean, you do get full-time jobs in, in, in at lower levels, mm-hmm. but I'd say at least... 50% if not more of, of the people who are employed as, as engineers in low level work as freelancers. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but yeah, it started as, so I asked, well, I was still at Red Bull, I asked uh, to get more involved in, in race engineering. I started working with the junior drivers still at Red Bull. Um, and, uh, and then just out of nowhere, so I was working with, with Adrian on the Valkyrie and Adrian's son, Harry, was driving for uh, an LMP2 team in uh, the European Le Mans series. And they that team fired their engineer and they, they needed someone to engineer the car. So Adrian Kevin asked, do you want to go engineer your car this weekend? And three days later I was in Austria and and, and I was engineering your car, which was a, you know, a bit of a shock because I'd never done it. Obviously I had help from him who had has done it a lot and that was invaluable. Um, but, I think it, it it was it was a big eye opener for like you know how much I needed to learn, especially on the practical side, how much I need to learn in terms of how you know how a race goes, how communicating with mechanics, drivers, team principals, all that. Um, so that was yeah, that was a, a bit of a shock. Also coming from Formula One, where where you know money is not a problem, going to a place where the resources were very limited. Um, that was also that was also a big shock, but but I'm glad I did it. And and, and so basically from that point onwards, uh, the following season I got a job in still at Red Bull, but I got a job in Japanese Formula Three. Um, so I was going back and forth between Europe and Japan all the time, which was quite tiring. Um, but again, completely different like world, um, as as you can probably expect. Uh, and then at the end of that season, I realized I could probably just do that for a living. Um, you know, I, I thought that for someone with very little experience, I did an okay job and I'd only get better as, as I did, did more. Um, and so I decided in, at the beginning of 2020 to give that a go. Obviously then the pandemic hit, which <laughs> made the timing not ideal, but I managed to survive with, uh, with a couple of jobs that year. And then, and then I kind of went from there. Hmm, super interesting. Uh, a lot of people also ask me on Instagram when I announce the podcast is how does a day of Joao look like? And by the way, Joao is the, the way you pronounce your name, right? There was someone, I'm not sure if you worked with him before, he's called Mark Lane, ex-McLaren, yeah. I think. Yeah, he yeah. called you Cowboy. Was Cowboy your nickname? I didn't <laughs> get that joke. <clears throat> no, we were all, I think we, basically a cowboy is, so Mark is a surfacer. So he's the, he's one of the guys who takes our ideas and puts it into an actual shape. 
So mm-hmm. sometimes, most of the time we do that ourselves, not most of the time, but a lot of the time we like aerodynamics to do that ourselves when the job is simple enough. But when things get really complicated, like big bits of bodywork, uh, kind of brake ducts, which was Mark's specialty, at least at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we need guys that help us with that. Uh, for instance, the, at Red Bull, the surfaces also take uh, Adrian's drawings and turn them into CAD surfaces because Adrian uh, likes to draw it on, on his drawing board. <clears throat> and uh, so Cowboys is what you call someone who doesn't necessarily use the best practices in terms of surfacing. Uh, because there's a way of doing things properly and there's a way of doing things quickly. And so we kind of joke that the guys who did things quickly and didn't care that the model fell apart as soon as it changed something by a millimeter were cowboys. And so that was kind of, that, that's where that comes from. That was my nickname. My, I've had many nicknames because my, my name is difficult to pronounce uh, for non-Portuguese speakers, but that was not one of them. Uh, it, was, right. okay. it was more cow- of a cow- general... Yeah, Kobo was one of them, then J-Wall, basically J-Dash and then yeah, was yeah. also one of them. Yeah. Really cool. So how does J-Wall, I, I, acquire, I acquired that one in the States um, because uh, Jersey Shore was quite popular at the time. Okay. And there's a character in Jersey Shore called J-Wall. And so okay. uh, my team leader at the time started calling me J-Wall. And, mm. and I didn't know who the character was. Turns out it was a girl. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a, a girl with... Uh, uh, some enhanced features, uh, surgically enhanced, fe- enhanced features, let's say. And uh, I had no idea until six months later, and then it was too late. Everyone called me Jay Wow. So uh, it was, yeah, it kind of stuck. So we won't stick to it in the, in the podcast. I hope I pronounced it correctly, though. Joao. Okay, cool. It's good enough. So, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Cool. Um, so, how does a day of, of, of you look like? When do you wake up? What do you actually work on on a day to day basis? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a morning person. I'm, I'm a bit of a night owl. So normally I, Same. I get up around eight, um, you know, eight, eight thirty. Um, I like to have my, I, I need to have a slow morning because my brain doesn't start working until I've had my coffee. So I, I take care of that first. And then, um, normally I, I work, uh, it kind of depends if, if I'm, if I'm between events, if I'm not trackside, then, um, I will work on what I have to do. Uh, it can be, uh, depends on the projects I'm involved in, but it can be anything from kind of running simulations to prepare the next race, uh, improving the tools that we use. Uh, if I'm doing a, a, an error design project, doing something in CAD for that, looking at some results, uh, writing reports as well for, for pre- previous events and future events. Um, occasionally have meetings, so I, I can be busy with that in, in just like, you know, Zoom teams sort of environment. Uh, if I, 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 you know, I, I, I do stay at home um, some of the time, but if I feel like I have, you know, if I feel like I have um, a need to be concentrated for extended periods of time, I actually prefer to go somewhere else because I don't get distracted by, by things as easily. So I, there's a, a uh, a couple of like coffee houses around around me that in Lisbon, and I usually just get on my bike and, and go there, um, and I sit there for the for the day doing doing that, um, and then normally I, I I I you know I like I I like swimming and running and cycling and occasionally doing triathlon, so I do one of those three either at lunchtime or in the afternoon. And then normally I, I, I do a bit more work in the evening um, just because I you know, like going to bed too early. Um, so occasionally my, my colleagues get very surprised when 
they log in in the morning and have an email from me at two in the morning. That, that happens quite often. Um, but yeah, obviously when I'm trackside, it's very different from that. It's, um, it's, yeah, you, it depends on the schedule, but often you, you arrive at, you know, you, you wake up at five 30, you are at the track at six because you have your first session at nine and you have to prepare everything. And then sometimes you have sessions until quite late and you are actually back home until like 11 and it, it, it can get quite, quite full on. I think people would be also interested in uh, what, what is the work-life balance, quote-unquote, like of your job? Um, I'd say it's actually not too bad. Um, you can, I'd say, it depends on how many jobs you're doing and, and, and because it's, it's, it's quite common for people to do multiple championships. And, um, and and then it can become tricky because it, it's quite difficult to keep on top of everything else. Um, for instance, in 2020, I did two championships and, and, and there were periods where I had seven races in eight weeks. And then you're just jumping around from place to place, especially COVID year where he's doing a COVID test every two days and, and yeah. getting on, you know, not a lot of airplanes. Everything was kind of quite disrupted. So it was... That was tricky. That was a tricky summer, um, but I think living in Lisbon gives me the benefit of, you know, what I was saying earlier of, you know, I work until five. I still have a few hours that I can go to the beach and hang out with my friends for a bit, and then do a bit more work in the evening. So uh, I think it's it's quite decent because you set your own schedule. You you obviously have work to do, and and uh, in terms of working weekends, that's never been a problem for me. I've I've I don't mind doing a handful of hours over Saturday and Sunday or a bit more if, if needed. I'd rather do that than, than, than to be at home or in an office 12 hours a day for, for five days and then do nothing at the weekend. I'd, I'd much rather spread it out. Um, and it's good to have the flexibility to do that. Um, obviously, I've, you know, I've worked in, in places where that flexibility wasn't there and you adapt and it's fine. It's not, it's not the end of the world, but I, I quite enjoy the fact that I can set my own schedule and and, and 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 spread things the way that works for me and 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 get in you know a social life in, in, the, in the meantime definitely we'll talk about the work environment especially mclaren versus red bull in a second um you talked about cat and cfd and all the other bits that, that you've worked on in the past or right now what tools are you actually using on a day-to-day -day basis is also an ai tool involved because people were asking that on twitter actually are you using any ai tools in f1 or f3 e Sorry. In, so last year in F2, um, I, so, well, in fact, over the past couple of years in, in first in line B2 and then in F2, a big part of my job was to set up and kind of develop processes to use, um, first of all, lap time simulation, uh, which is not, it's becoming commonplace at, at the lower levels of racing, but, but It, there's a lot of potential to use it better than, than it's generally being used in F1. It's quite a, at quite a high level. It's that's kind of a mm. different world. But in the lower in the lower levels, it's it's not as widespread as it should be, and it's not used as uh, let's say as uh, to, to its full potential or anywhere near its full potential. So that was kind of my job in the last in my last two teams was to set that up and figure out how to best use it. And you know, it was a big learning curve, and you know, it, it was 
developing continuously. And if today I, I were to do it again, I'd do it differently again. And, and it's, it's, it's a continuous process for me to learn as well. Um, and then, and then the second part of it, as you mentioned, AI is, is, you know, racing teams gather a lot of data. You have a lot of data from the car itself. You have a lot of data from simulation. Um, if you go testing, you can fit extra sensors to the car. And so you have a lot of data and then it's quite difficult to figure out what to do with it. And that's where AI tools um, can be quite helpful in, in, in kind of helping us with data reduction um, and, then, and then kind of using that data to create models that help us predict things that we don't know. Um, so as you, you know, you know, you, we were together with, uh, with Monolith, which, which was the, uh, which is the sponsor of Jota at the moment, which was a team that I used to work for. And that was the first time that I, that I kind of used something like this. And it was again, a big learning curve, um, to try and understand what it can do or it can't do, because there's a lot of people who think AI is this magical thing and just throw stuff mm -hmm. in it and then it gives you amazing things. And it's yeah. not nothing like that. It's just a tool like any other you need to know how you need to treat th to treat things to give it you know what it needs this is like you know one of the one of the three main data rules of, of data analysis and the most important one is uh, i don't know if i can swear but shit in shit out like it's it's as simple as that if you if you give it a tool data in the format or you know with corrupt lines or with data that shouldn't be there that's just confusing it then it's going to give you a bad result um, but also, you know, understand what it can do well, what it can't do well, and and and, and use it properly uh, to 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 give you to give you an advantage rather than just confuse you and and and, and throw you off in, in in weird directions. Um, and yeah, it's obviously, if, if I, I use I use Monolith quite a lot at Jota, and then and then had to figure out how to live without it, which was difficult. But uh, you know. Uh, Python is a is a really cool language in that sense that um, first of all it's quite easy to use and second of all there's a big community of people that that are posting their solutions to different problems online so if you want to do something chances are someone else has done it before and you can take inspiration from what they've done and and and, and do your own version of it quite quite easily without being a great programmer like I'm definitely not a software developer but I think everything I've wanted to do I've managed to find a way to do it in Python. Uh, by taking inspiration from from people who, who are better programmers than me and have put it, have, have shared it with us, kindly. Yeah, exactly. Exciting. I will also put the links maybe if people are interested from the F1 space. I think we did two webinars. One on was Aeromap modeling, and the yeah. other one was on tire degradation modeling. So Pacheca model versus AI model. I think that would be super interesting for a lot of people here. And one of the reasons I ask about models you've or what tools you've used before is because I think people are, have this kind of uh, the conception of, or like the concept in their mind that I need to learn that tool, therefore I'm going to be a good CFD or like an aerodynamicist. How do you see that personally? Is it the tool really, or is it the, the engineer himself, how he uses the tool to his advantage or to their advantages? I mean, the, the, the tools, like, I mean, obviously from the aerodynamics point of view, there's also CAD and TFD that I, I haven't, you know, talked about. Um, I was mostly talking about from the race engineering from my most recent experience. But yeah, CAD obviously is, is what you use to draw in. And there, there's different, there's two main ones that different F1 teams use. Some use Katia, some use the next. They have different strengths. Um, but uh, on, on the, you know, to kind of give you insight of aerodynamics, there's, there's 
kind of three main uh, kind of sets of tools like CFD, where uh, it's kind of a com computer simulation of of your geometry in a in in, in kind of a um, the environment that you set it up in, uh, which which is powerful, but because the Navier-Stokes equation cannot be solved analytically, that then you have to kind of simplify them quite a bit. And, and that comes with its own problems, especially in, in problems where uh, there's a lot of turbulent flows, like an F1 car uh, or any sort of ground vehicle. Uh, airplanes are a lot tidier and, uh, and, and so um, a lot easier to simulate in that environment. Uh, but there are things that you, you can't do in, in wind tunnels that you can only do in CFD, for instance, modeling the fact that when the car is going around the corner, the airflow around it is curved. You can't, you can't do that in a wind tunnel, at least not one that I know of, um, but you can do that easily in CFD. Uh, mm -hmm. The only on the, on the other hand, is, is a model scale kind of experiment of, of a, of a full-size car. Uh, it comes with, with, its own problem, with its own problems, but at least it's a physical kind of, it's something that's actually happening. And so you're not, you're not simplifying kind of the laws of physics like you are in CFD, but it comes with its own problems. Uh, obviously, the fact that you can't model curvature being one of them. But also the fact that the geometry is going to be slightly different from the real car. You're going to have split lines in different places. Things are going to deflect differently from the real car. Um, walls are going to be in the way. Um, the tire is not going to be the right shape because, you know, in the real car, the tires are going to deflect in a different way than they do in the wind tunnel because the car is going to be loaded laterally, not just vertically. Um, so the, 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 there's limitations in both of them. And then you've got track side um kind of tools to to measure uh, the car performance uh you know mostly you've got push rod loads that just measure how much force they're going through the push rods and then from that you can kind of get an idea of how much vertical force there is on the car from downforce um but they come with their own problems they're not very accurate they you know they drift and there's a lot of noise coming from from the road um so obviously the cornering forces that you have to subtract because the, the push rod is not just taking vertical loads but also lateral loads and a bit of longitudinal loads um and then you have pressure taps which are great because they just tell you what's happening in terms of like the suction being created by the by the car but but then turning that into exactly how much sound force are we gaining or losing is uh, is quite complicated it's possible it's quite complicated um but sorry answering your question um the tools can be improved and it's 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 important to not just settle for what you have and kind of always push further to try and get better ones uh but it's very important that the user of the tools understands them not only knows how to use them but knows their limitation that i think both both things are equally important if you just know how to use something and you think it, it doesn't have any limitations you you're going to get burned um, so it's it's crucial to know kind of what does this tool do well, what does it not do well, what's my confidence level when doing certain tasks with it, and and then adjusting your recommendations and the way you approach the problem that you're trying to solve accordingly. You know, um, it's very often that simulation tells us to go in a certain direction, we hit the track, and the driver doesn't like it and and, and wants to go in a different direction. Um, and then it's quite tricky to then say, okay, no, this is the best car that we can give you. You need to figure out how to drive it versus, okay, let's go away from our optimum and towards what you want and to help you. And the answer that like the optimum was probably somewhere in between, you know, because you're dealing with a human at the end of the day. 
Um, but exactly how far you go from one side of the spectrum to the other, it's a very tricky balance to Yeah, definitely. I, think, I mean, compared to F1, F2 and F3, F1, you have, as you said, already way more resources in terms of like uh, tools and, and whatnot. Do you think from your perspective, it it makes more sense to start maybe higher in a higher rank, so to speak, like F1 and then go to F3? Because I think you would say, maybe you can say that, that F3 is more going by gut feeling because you have less tools and less resources available. So you have to go to go by gut feeling rather than having the tools available at your fingertips. Would you, what would you actually recommend people start high? And then if you want to go to a lower rank or how would you? I, so well, I can tell you what I did and I would do the same again. So I guess that's what I would recommend. Mm -hmm. uh, I started in F1. I learned a lot from very clever people. Um, I learned not only how to do things, but also kind of the, the way of thinking like an engineer, like a high level engineer. Um, the, there's also a lot of people who start from the bottom, start from the kind of, you know, F4 and then progress through S3, F2, F1, which is also a valid, um, a valid path for sure. But the, the difference here is that it, as you say, that race engineering and trackside engineering in general is a, is a, is a hybrid of, of engineering processes and gut feeling, um, and experience and intuition and, and, and all that comes from, from doing the job for a few years. <clears throat> the, the thing is, if you start by doing the gut feeling only, which is how the lower levels of, of motorsport tend to be, uh, there's not a lot of, you know, actual engineering, there's more, more kind of learning from experience and kind of building on that, mm -hmm. uh, you can kind of forget the fact that you're an engineer. And, and obviously then if you get reminded, if you get to a certain level, well, engineering tools are used, then, then it could be that it all sorts itself out, but you don't want to be stuck in, in the way of kind of just going with intuition and experience and ignoring, um, ignore the engineering tools and, and engineering knowledge that you have and you've learned because that is going to is going to become very inefficient because you just you'll just be following uh, you'll just be following your your previous experience that maybe with different cars with different drivers and different tracks and it can go all get very confusing um there's a reason why engineering tools were developed you know there's a reason why formula one teams ended up developing all these lap time simulations and all that um whereas if you come from if you come from a, a more kind of an engineering stand, standpoint and then you add the intuition experience to it to kind of correct your path if you're going down the wrong path. Um, for me, that's, that makes more sense and it, 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 it effectively um, keeps, you, keeps you tied to something that you know is, is, is um, you know, not sure, but, but something that you know is, is physical. It, mm -hmm. it's not it's not subjective it's objective um it, it, it happens very often in all in all you know all the trackside activities it, it can happen that you make the wrong decision but end up winning the race or that you make the right decision and you end up losing the race but that doesn't mean that you know if you if you my point is if you if you need to if you're going to learn by the outcomes of, of your decisions purely and don't try to you know, use our engineering tools to to figure out why this happened, that then you can be led the wrong way because the outcomes in terms of performance are affected by so many things, you know. 
conditions, the way the driver was feeling on that day, uh, you know, technical problems. There's so many things that can affect the outcome of, of your decisions that are not necessarily something you should learn from. So if you come from an engineering um, standpoint, then, then you can kind of normalize all these things out of the way and just focus on your job, what you did, and what impact it had. And it could be that sometimes you don't know what the answer is. You know, for instance, in race strategies, the most common thing is, is you get to the end of the race in nine times out of 10, you don't know if you made the right decision or not. You don't actually know. In fact, I used to say that in strategy, you, you know, you always know when you made the wrong decision, but it's very rare that you know when you made the right one. Because, yeah. you know, it, it's pretty obvious. You, you decide on something and then it blows up in your face. Yeah, yeah, we messed up there. But, you know, when, when things go well or when, you, or when things don't go well, but you feel like you've made the best decision you could, you always kept wondering, like, could I have done it a bit differently? Um, and the same is true for, like, you know, kind of decisions on set of direction, kind of run plan and all that. But all the jobs of a race engineer, you... Yeah, it, it's it, there's always a doubt in your mind of whether whether you made the right call. But if yeah, I, th I feel like coming from coming from F1 and from a very kind of you know detached from racing because that's the reality. At least when I was there in in, in our department, is that I felt quite detached from from the racing itself. I was I felt like I was working on an engineering problem: how to make this car faster, how to make more downforce and improve the characteristics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that makes you think, you know like an engineer uh, rather than like a, a racing person. Um, with, with, there is value to it. Uh, there's a lot of value to it. And that, that's the thing in, in racing, it's, it, 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 you end up having to combine both. But, but I think it's, it's dangerous if you only focus on the kind of the intuition experience and the, what's the word, empirical uh, approach. Yeah, that's so interesting, Joao. I, I was wondering, actually, the, the further you progress in your career, you personally, for example, although you have the tools, do you feel that the tools are kind of a, a synergy with the engineer? Because as you progress in your career and you have so much more to learn, but the more you learn, the more you actually know what you don't know. And therefore, the tools enable you to, to basically solidify the knowledge or like your intuition. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's it's. I think what you what you said is what I say very often. It's it's the more you grow as an engineer, the more you realize what you don't know. Yeah. So like you, yes, you you know more, but you the the main aspect of it is understanding what you don't know, and and yes, the the, the kind of your relationship with your tools is 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 is, is exactly that is is to kind of narrow that gap between you know, between where you are and, and, and what you want to achieve and get you a little bit closer to, to what you think is the optimal way of, of progressing, then the tools are never going to, going to tell you the full answer and, and believing that they do is, is, is going to get you in trouble. Yeah. But they will narrow that gap between, you know, what, what you want to know and, and what you actually know. Yeah. How is the budget actually limiting the abilities of teams to do, for example, wind tunnel testing and simulation? How does it actually differ in terms of numbers or maybe regulations? What's your experience? There? I think the the latest round, the latest round has probably hurt the big teams quite a bit. Uh, the, I think the smaller teams they're probably pretty much carrying on as they were before. 
but the bigger teams are, are having to be very careful about how they how they use the resources they they went all time the CFT time. Um, but to be fair, at least from when I was in F one, there was there was still a, so from the early two thousands there was the way that aerodynamic development happened was for me completely wrong which was you know teams would have three wind tunnels operating 24 hours a day for seven days a week and they'd just be churning bits through it just run you know kind of run 100 bits and hopefully one of them will bring you a small gain and if you do this for the whole season and you find you know half a point or a point you get to the season and you found a lot of performance and that's i guess that's valid but as an aerodynamicist, it, it, for me, it's a lot more fun to understand what the problems are, come up with creative ways to fix them, and, and then kind of develop those ways in, until they give you the performance that you want. So taking a less carpet bombing approach and more of a kind of targeted approach to a specific problem that you've spotted uh, is, is kind of the, the direction that these new regulations are forcing you to go. Um, but there's still quite a lot of people, especially at the higher levels, because at the most senior levels in teams, because they come from that era, they come from the era of, of, uh, of carpet bombing. And, and, and there's, there's still a lot of people in Formula 1 teams that operate that way. And, and it's getting more and more difficult for them because it's, you know, you just don't have the, the budget to do it. And not mm -hmm. the budget in terms of financial, but the, the, in terms of the aerodynamic restrictions. Um, so... For me, I think it's actually making the whole aerodynamic development process more of what it should be. But maybe that's because I, that's the way I like it. But I, I think I think an aerodynamicist is someone that should be someone that can try to tries to understand the problem, you know, come up with ways of addressing it, of improving it, and then implementing that, uh, rather than someone who just, you know, takes a small bit of bodywork and moves it around by five mil and does. 50 combinations and sends everything and sees what happens, sees what works. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was um, wondering about the topic of specialist versus generalist. It seems to me that you're more of the T-shaped personality, which means you know a lot of topics very well and you're at heart still an aerodynamicist, but you don't, you're not really specialized in one thing, if that makes sense. So generalist versus a specialist, what's your personal preference and what do you recommend people to do in general? Um... I'd say that I I was very specialized in aerodynamics until 2018, and then mm -hmm. I made a, a constant shift to move to an area that made me have to learn about most, if not all, aspects of race car performance to a lesser depth, uh, to a to a lower depth. Um, I think I mean the best. The best example for me in that sense is is a guy like um, like Adrian Newey who uh, grew up in an era where you could be doing things like designing your cars at the week and then running your cars at the weekend, or and and, and that made made him both you know specialized in in, a, in an area like aerodynamics which happened to be the key performance differentiator for for race car performance. Um, eventually, so he was ahead of his time in that he spotted the aerodynamics. There was a lot of potential in aerodynamics, and that that should be his main focus. But also, learn about everything else because it's all everything is interacting with everything else in, in in race car performance. So understanding just how much compromise you need to make in other areas of the car 
for the ergonomic performance. Um, you know, that to understand that balance, you have to understand a little bit about the other areas and what, what in, in terms of not, not only in terms of theoretical performance, but also in terms of the practicalities of, of making those sacrifices. Um, obviously, nowadays, I think Formula One cars are so complex that maybe whereas in the 80s and, and, and 90s, you could, you know, know this much about aerodynamics and this much about everything else. You can probably now know this much about aerodynamics and this much about everything else because everything just got so much more complicated. But still, having a little bit of knowledge about everything makes you, a, I think, a much bigger asset for your team than, than not. Um, it can also rile people up because, you know, if, if you're trying to, to talk to someone else, knowing that little bit about their area when they know a lot, they can start feel, feeling like, you know, deauthorized and, and, uh, and that you should be sticking to aerodynamics. But I think that's, that's dangerous because it, it kind of compartmentalizes people and, and makes people um, fight for their own corner when that's not, not always what's best for a car performance. It would be better that everyone knew a little bit about everything else. But that's not how, how kind of formula teams are built. It's very difficult once you are, for instance, an aerodynamicist, it's very difficult to learn about other parts of, of the car. It, it's, yeah, I tried, I did my best, but I never got very far. It, it's not encouraged. It's not something that the team values. It's not, yeah, there, yeah, I think we in four years at McLaren, the only token gesture there was, was a, a meeting with the head of powertrain about the new powertrains that were introduced in 2015, the hybrid that, that currently are in, uh, are in, um, or in the car, so 2014, uh, we had a meeting towards the beginning of 2014 to explain how it worked and then all the rest of it. But in four years, that's the only time that I ever heard about other systems of the car other than Aero. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a shame that, that F1 is becoming so overly specialized and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to leave. Yeah, I see. Wasn't there a story where you suggested, a, was it called a timetable and then you got your finger slapped from someone? Then there was a story, wasn't there? Because you want to suggest uh, to have a more streamlined process or work more streamlined to introduce something like a timetable. I'm not sure if that was the case. And then the guy was so offended that he wanted to let you go. But then the wife actually wanted to have you back. Ah, uh, no, like this, was in, uh, this was in this was in in LMP2. Now this was a a team that was a bit of a mess. And, uh, and I, after the second race, we we did reasonably okay. We finished like seventh out of a. 20 something field mm-hmm. and um and yeah at the end i just said look i think we have something good here that uh that you know there's good people in this team and we have a good a good you know three drivers who are pretty competitive but we need a little bit more structure you know just a timetable would be nice just to know when the drivers should be here for you know driver change practice when we do a bit stop practice and all that and it wasn't received very well because it's, yeah, that, that's, that's what I was talking about. The, like the kind of yeah. lower levels of racing, everything still runs a little bit like it, it did 20 years ago. And, and when they try to kind of bring a little bit more structure, there can be a lot of resistance, but you know, that, that uh, particular person was uh, very special. So I think that's probably also part of it. 
I see, yeah. Maybe let's go back in time. What did you actually focus on in your studies? Was it aerodynamics, which got you eventually into McLaren, or was it just by by luck, so to speak, that you get into McLaren and then worked for them for a couple no, of years? No, no, no. I, so, uh, so in Formula SE, I did, I did aerodynamics. I developed the front and rear wing of our car very mm -hmm. badly, obviously, because uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, then, um, I mean, and to be fair, at the time, most judges thought that wings didn't work in Formula Student cars, which is obviously not true because now everyone has them and, and the people who have the, be the best aero packages dominate. Uh, but at the time, it was difficult enough to convince them that there should be wings on the car. Uh, and then I did my final year project based on that car um, and kind of still in coordination with, with the guys in America, but back in Bristol in, in the UK. I did my, my final year project on uh, uh, kind of comparing Winterdell and CFD uh, measurements of the same, or Winterdell measurements and CFD simulations of the same geometry, um, mm -hmm. and, and 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 how the different turbulence models, different kind of uh, mesh sizes, impacted the kind of the, the correlation between the two. Uh, and I think that kind of helped me get the job because it's something that's very you know important in, in F1 doing this kind of this kind of work. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the reality is the job at McLaren, I got it because they were desperate and they actually, it's one of the things I always say, I applied for a senior aero job, knowing that I was nowhere near qualified to be a senior aero, but the, they're looking for seniors, they couldn't find any. Then they started looking for aeros with three years experience, they couldn't find any. And then they just started looking for students. And out of the eight students that they called, I, I did best in the interview. So it, it's, cool. yeah. But it definitely, I think my focus on aerodynamics in high university definitely played a part. Mm -hmm. How was it then in terms of the work environment, McLaren compared to Red Bull? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, at McLaren, you know, I got there when Martin Whitmarsh was in charge. Um, Ron Dennis was still the group CEO, I think, or something. But uh, eventually, Martin got pushed out of the way because the car was terrible in 2013. Ron came back, made this big speech on top of the tables in the canteen. It was a pretty epic moment. But Ron's kind of influence in the team was still very strong. And so jeans were banned. You're not allowed to come in jeans to the office. Um, anything colorful was extremely discouraged. Facial hair was discouraged. Um, like, uh, at one point, I think it was forbidden, but. You know, at this point, it was just just discouraged. Um, you know, things like you couldn't have coffee at, at your table. You had to have it. It was a clean desk policy. You're not allowed to have anything on your desk because when they showed people around, they wanted everything to look as sterile as possible. Uh, the, the team color was gray. Uh, like the, the whole building was gray. And the more gray you could keep it, the better. And then, yeah, I moved to Red Bull where it was completely opposite, like, People would show up in shorts and flip-flops if necessary and one really cared about what you wore or what you looked like as long as you did your job. Um, so that was a lot more my style for sure. Pretty cool. In terms of also the uh, the ingenuity, I would call it, in terms of hiring, was there a difference between McLaren and Red Bull? That McLe I think McLaren, you said it yeah. in the other podcast, that basically they um, focused on three unis and Red Bull it was more open, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I mean, for sure, in the uh, vehicle dynamics department at McLaren was pretty much Oxbridge. Well, you either came from Oxford or from Cambridge, and that was 
there was very few exceptions to that rule. Uh, in Aero, there was a bit more. Um, the most typical one, the most common one, ones were Imperial and Southampton because Adrian came from Southampton and Prod, who was the head of Aero when Adrian was there, came from Imperial. Um, so those networks were quite strong. But you had a few others. You have you had a few guys from Bristol, two or like three guys that I can remember. And then you have people that, that came from other teams that would come from different universities. But um, uh, at Red Bull, it was, you know, people that didn't even have uh, degrees working as aerodynamicists, um, which I think is probably a bit too far. Uh, mm-hmm. Not, and I'll explain why. It's not a snobby thing. I don't think you need a degree to do a good job at anything. Um, but, uh, and actually, Adrian, uh, uh, I would point, agreed with me on this point is that university doesn't teach you how to be an engineer, but it teaches you how to think like an engineer. And so when you miss that bit, you can be an engineer, but you're going to struggle to be a good one because you're not thinking the right way. You're not thinking like you, you, your approach to problem solving is not necessarily what it should be. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people with a more practical, uh, approach and, and, and understanding of, of, of the different parts of, of, of a car, for instance, are very important in, 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 in some aspects of it. So for instance, I never worked with him, but, um, guy called Pat Fry, um, he was in McLaren, he was at Ferrari, he was in many places. Uh, I've always heard of him as being a guy who's quite strong at like the common sense have the old people thinking at a very high level of how to make this and that and the other, but then he kind of brings it down and says, okay, how does this all fit together and how we'll make a race car out of this. Um, and, uh, and, and so people with, with the less academic approach is def- are definitely uh, important in, in, in a racing team. Um, but if you're going to work, you know, as an aerodynamicist in pure development, I think it, it helps to think like an engineer and, and you can, struggle um, sometimes when you don't. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When we talk about vehicle dynamics, Joe, um, some people were interested on how do you actually set up the car for different weather conditions, uh, track conditions, and also they wanted to you to explain the, the problem, quote unquote, of purposing. So how does that work and what was actually the problem of uh, the car bouncing at uh, certain speeds? And we could explain so that. So the, por- the purposing concept uh, is... 40 years old, it, it's not new. Uh, it was there when, on the first generation of Grand Effect cars. It's, it's, it's there now. It's basically, it comes from the fact that obviously the car is making downforce. As it's making downforce, it gets sucked down into the ground. However, it gets to a certain stage where um, you get so close to the ground, the, it can be the diffuser, it can be the front wing, but something goes into stall which is where there's, it's putting so much load, it can't, it can't recover to the, to the free seam pressure, uh, which leads to separation, like large scale separation in at least parts of the diffuser, and then it loses load. And this is the problem is that it, 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 in a race cars, uh, everything works as long as you gain load as you go lower. As soon as you lose it, it, can, it, 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 it like sets off this kind of cyclical um, process where you lose load, the car comes up because it's producing less downforce, then the diffuser recovers, so you make more downforce, so the car comes down, so the car, and then the diffuser stalls again, 
and then the car comes up again and then it recovers and it comes down and then this kind of goes on um and it, it can be obviously a, a pretty big problem it, it i mean it's a, something that we had for instance in the lmp2 car a lot the, the, the front splitter would, would stall quite easily so if you run too low under braking especially if and especially if there were bumps to kind of even bring more oscillations to the party then we'd struggle a lot with that um and the reason it's coming back into f1 now i mean it's it's like it's it's disappeared completely you had issues in i remember when we were in in we had issues in, in rear wings with rear wing stall. We had issues with front wing stall sometimes, um, but but when, when you have such a big floor producing such a massive part of of, of your of your car's downforce, and that floor gives up, then it's the porpoising problem is magnified. You know, as you saw a lot of times this year, and I think it comes from a it comes from a, a philosophy which you know I think. Uh, Everyone kind of suffered from it to a certain extent, but I think Mercedes suffered from it more than other teams because of the philosophy, which was to find as much peak downforce as possible and then run the car as stiff as possible, which is great, but you still can't, um, you can't avoid the fact that, you know, there'll be a bump in the track that's going to bring the right hand down. And then if your diffuser blows up when that happens, then you set off a porpoising um, sequence that you can't recover from that easily. Um, I'm not surprised that Red Bull were the ones that suffered the least from it because they've always focused a lot on characteristics on keeping the, you know, whatever load they generate as constant as possible around the different right heights. Um, stay a roll, the whole aero map to keep it uh, as consistent as possible. Whereas Mercedes didn't, didn't really put as much emphasis in that. Um, and it worked out for them in the previous generation of cars, obviously, and, and, and they were very successful with that. But with the generation, I think, uh, yeah, you, you can't be too greedy. You can't, can't look for those extra two or three points at the peak at the expense of what happens away from the peak because then, yeah, you can get bitten by uh, by these porpoising gremlins. Yeah. I was wondering, why does it happen in the first place? Is it just a wrong setup? Because I'm, I'm not an expert in this. Or does it happen because something went wrong? Because we talked about all these tools and the empiricism and gut feeling. But why did it happen in the first place? Just a wrong setup? I mean, I think it big. A big part of the problem was uh, it came already from rare development was that in the wind tunnel these issues of the diffuser giving up weren't evident um and i think there's two aspects of this first of all there's normal for, for these things to not match perfectly between track and tunnel because of the limitations of modeling that i've, I've discussed earlier but also um one one big key item here was that you have you've got these big you know big tunnels on the floor making a lot of uh, a lot of downforce, and that's obviously causing deflection to the floor. Um, and that floor deflection was bringing the edges of the floor very close to the ground, which was improving the ceiling, which would give you more load, but also giving it so much load that at very low right heights, it would blow up. Because that, that that's something that happens that in ground effect, if you put a winning, a winning ground effect, looking at it very simplistically, if you put it in ground effect, it makes more and more load until you get to a point where the air can't kind of flow underneath the, the wing and then it stops making load. It's kind of that same principle, but it, it's not, it's it's very rare that it gets to the point where you actually choke. Um, it, it not normally happens before because you're just asking for a very big suction peak and then you still have to recover to the same free stream pressure and then your, your pressure gradient becomes too adverse and then you separate. Um, so it's the same thing here. I mean, we had the same, we had similar issues with the, uh, 
back in the days of exhaust blown valve force. Uh, sometimes you'd, uh, you know, use your exhaust to, to increase your diffuser load, but sometimes you increase it so much that the inside of the floor would, would, would separate and then you have diffuser stall. So uh, this is not exactly new, but the magnitude of the problem and what the effect it has visibly and also in terms of the driver feeling is, is something that we hadn't seen in a while. So uh, it comes from, the answer is it comes from air development uh, and the kind of the miscorrelation between track and tunnel, a bit of air elasticity um, thrown in, and then a bad setup. I won't say it's a bad setup. It's just you're setting your car up with its hands hand tied behind your back because you know that there's performance in going lower, but you know that if you go lower, the car is going to start bouncing up and down because in the corners, you're not bouncing up and down. You're, it's mostly on straights and through the braking zones. The question is how much can you sacrifice cornering performance to fix the porpoising problem and how much your driver can handle porpoising to keep some performance in the corners. So that's, it's, it's very rare that you just get the setup wrong. It's more often that you're trying to push the, the performance side, but you have a limitation that, you know, in terms of ride and comfort that, that is kind of holding you back and hitting that sweet spot is never easy. Mm, I see. That's interesting. Cool. We have probably two, more, two or three more questions, Joe, then we'll wrap it up. One of it would be maybe an advice to the students or the people who want to become like you. And um, what does it, what does someone need to be successful in the career or want to maybe pursue the same path that you did? Is it great? Is it determination? Like, I would necessarily suggest to try to become like me because uh, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of things that I would have done differently along the way if I could, but uh, for example, yeah, give, us, have, give us a few examples, Sean. What would you do differently? Um, I uh, I probably would have done, uh, if I could, I would have done a, a year or two more of a former student because uh, I think it would have taught me a lot more of the practical things that I lacked in the, in the beginning of my career. Mm -hmm. And it would have prepared me a lot better for, um, for, for the job that I had in F1. Uh, uh, what else? Uh, I would have, uh, I mean, what, one thing that it's, I was about to say, it's you have to be a little bit stubborn. You have to kind of stick to your guns. And if you want to do that, then, then do everything you can to achieve it. Don't, don't give up too easily. It, it can be very disheartening. I mean, when I was applying for jobs, I got rejected by the whole grid and the F2 grid and the F3 grid five times. I mean, the day I started at McLaren, I got a, a letter, an email from Marussia, not Marussia, HRT which was a team that didn't exist the following year, saying that they wouldn't give me an interview. And like they were the worst team on the grid and the best, one of the best teams on the grid gave me a job and they wouldn't even give me an interview. But this is very common and normal. Um, so, you know, don't get discouraged by this. Don't get, I mean, of course it's going to feel bad, but, but try to overcome that and, and, and try to stick to, to your plan and to what you want to achieve. And so you have to be a little bit stubborn to to... Uh, you know, unless you get lucky and you, and you get the first job you apply for, but I don't think that happens very often. Um, and then, but then obviously that stubbornness can bring you problems when you start. Um, and that definitely happened for me. I was, uh, I was a little bit hot-headed and quite, quite stubborn at, at the first years of my career. And um, so when you go in, uh, try to learn as much as possible, try to absorb as much as much as possible, but, but understand that you know very little Understand that, you know, as an engineer, you're always going to know a lot less than what you'd like to know, but that you start knowing, you know, 
very, very little than that. You have a long way to go. Was that one of the reasons you were kicked out and, and made that famous TikTok clip that went more viral? Or what was this about? <laughs> nah, I think, I think that came from a, from a mistrust because I, uh, you know, I, at the time I was leaving to nothing. I was, I was going traveling for a year and, and, and trying to figure out what to do next, moving to a PhD. I didn't have a, a, a next step defined, and that's what I told them. Uh, but I think people at F1 can, can be a little bit uh, suspicious. Because obviously, you know, if, if, if you say that and, and you stay in the office for your, for your deliberation of your notion, notice period, uh, and then after six months, you say, I'm actually, I'm going to Mercedes, then obviously you'll know everything that's happened in the car development until the last, until the last day, which obviously can put you at a, at a great advantage. But that wasn't obviously the case. And, and, um, but at the same time, with the people who, who quit at the same time, weren't treated the same way. So maybe it was also because I was relatively new. I'd, I'd only been in the company for a couple of years. So um, I think that's uh, that's kind of part of part of it. They didn't know me very well, whereas other people had been there for a bit longer. So there was a bit more confidence and trust established between them. So. Yeah, interesting. What was the your favorite project that you've worked on and your least favorite project that you've worked on? Uh, Okay, so as an aerodynamicist, favorite project was probably the Valkyrie, mm -hmm. especially the second version that never never happened. But that one I was there from beginning to end. It was meant to be like a track only version of the Valkyrie that was insanely fast, but it never. It, it, it there is kind of a very fast car somewhere, but it never actually made it into production or anywhere close to it. Um least favorite project as an aerodynamicist was probably uh, two of them. Um, there's the McLaren NP428 and the Red Bull RB13. Uh, there were two cars that were very poor at the start of the season. So the NP428, basically we had a good car the year before in 2012 and then It was, it started the season as the fastest car. It finished the season as the fastest car. In the middle, we threw a lot of races away, like just for reliability problems. Um, also, we kind of maybe hit a bit of a lull in terms of development in the middle of the season. But generally speaking, we had a fast car. And so we only had to build on that and it would have a fast car in 2013 because the regulations stayed exactly, almost exactly the same. Uh, instead, we decided to scrap it and start from this kind of... Um, um, ah, it was the uh, what's the like the that TV show of well, that that the, the where there's uh, these monsters made out of different cars? What is it? Is uh, ah, I uh, forgot the name, I know what you mean, but I forgot the name. <laughs> I can't remember what it is, but basically, this was it. So, it had the front ring of a Ferrari, it had the nose of a Lotus, it had the side pods of this, it had the, mm. the rear wing of that. It was a mess and it was bad from the first day and it just, it, 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 the whole season was spent trying to kind of polish it, but it, it was what it was and, and it was a terrible, terrible race car. But, but, and we all knew it was going to be a terrible race car because it, it, it first of all, the approach makes no sense to just copy six different cars because these things all work within the context of their own flow field. They don't work 
individually. You know, you you, that's not how it works. And the majority of people in the team knew that. So yeah, that was pretty horrible. And then uh, 13 was weird because it was kind of, it was the longest development cycle uh, that I've ever been a part of. Like, I think most of the team were on this, on the car by, I'm going to say May mm -hmm. of the year before. So this car had a 10 month development cycle, which is insane. Like it's, it was new rules. It was, you know, I understand it was a, you know, a blank sheet of paper, but you had everyone on it, but they were taking, they were approaching it as if it was the previous year's car. It was not being approached like a blank sheet of paper. It was being approached like the same. So you look at it at the car, at the launch car of the, of, of, of RB13 and it looks like the previous year's car. And then Ferrari, Mercedes, and all those guys launched their cars and they had these kind of, especially in front of the side pod, it looked like spaceships compared to ours. And, and it, it was extremely frustrating for me, especially because at some point in that off season, I did a, I did a piece of work where I, we had, a, from the beginning, we had a, a problem with that car, which was poor front right hand sensitivity that we knew was important. We knew was, was very damaging when that happened. And we did, you know, a lot of things to try to fix it, but we, we didn't really make much progress. And then I did a bit of work, you know, I kind of sat back from the whole chaos and just said, okay, let's try and figure out what, what, what this is. And I compared the two cars in the wind tunnel um, in terms of kind of the pressure taps and like how that happened, how that progressed through the different um, parts of the aero map. And, and it became pretty clear that we were missing a big chunk of downforce there in the middle of the floor. And, 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 and that's, that's typically how you, know, you have good front right hand sensitivities that when the front of the car comes up, your front wing gets unloaded, that loads the forward floor. And so it takes up some of the slack and so it keeps things more or less constant. Um, and I was pretty proud of that report because I thought I, you know, I found something and, and something that we can, you know, hold on, hang on to and, 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 and help, help us fixing the car. But yeah, the reaction from everyone was like, oh, cool. And it's deleted, it goes in the bin. And then a few months later, you know, it became pretty obvious that there was definitely something there. So that was, that was, that was very frustrating as well. And I mean, I was already... I was already planning to leave at the end of the day, uh, at the beginning of the following season anyway, but that definitely validated my my idea that I was done at uh, done as an F one arrow for the time being. Got it. Something people also wanted to know is so what does an F one aerodynamicist or an aerodynamicist in general earn per year? Uh, Give us a range. I mean, so uh, when you start, uh, I start McLaren. I started at McLaren making 25,000 pounds a year, which was the same salary as some colleagues of mine who started seven years before me made. So inflation doesn't really, doesn't really get to these contracts very often. That Red Bull, I think the, the, the new guys were making 30, 35, something like that. Really? Um, and then, and then as in like, as, as, as a junior, you make 30, 35,000 pounds a year. And then as you, as you progress, then it depends on how, well you negotiate and how good you are but it's 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 uh, it's basically the you know understanding when you are in a in a strong position and and, and when you are not uh you know i i, I took you know to start with i if they offered me 10 I, I would have taken 10 because i wanted to be an f1 aerodynamicist and i knew that i yeah. could go from there you know you're not, you're not gonna haggle about money when you're trying to get the job but then from then on you start having you know 
something to stand on, and then you have to kind of see what you can uh, see what, what you can. It's for me, it's never been about the money. It's it's about what the money represents. You know, the fact that you're being valued and and that your 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 worth is being reflected in in, in your compensation. That's that's it. It's uh, I know I'm I'm very aware that I'm not going to become a millionaire by being an F1 engineer. That's, I don't think if that's what you want to do, if you want to drive a Porsche and all that, don't go into F1. Go go do something else because it's it's yeah it's it's very few. There are very few people who get to that level. That's a TikTok worthy clip. If you don't want if you want to become a millionaire, don't become an F1 race yeah. engineer. That's a good one. Cool. So I just realized I forgot to reply, uh, and I'll reply quickly about what my favorite and least favorite projects were and as a race engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say my favorite was probably uh, Le Mans. That was that was awesome. I I think it's it's still kind of my spiritual home. I'd, I'd like to go back there one day and and, and fight for to win the the whole thing. Uh, least favorite in terms of race engineering. Was that when you worked for Jota? Is that correct or am I wrong? Yes. Yeah. Jota, right? Obviously. Yeah. Cool. Um. Yeah, my least favorite was probably. It's probably that first job in, in LMP2 where where I wasn't treated very nicely. Uh, I was fired twice in four races, so that was not ideal. But I, I really I take a lot of positives from that experience. That's the thing, uh, you know. I, I I don't think I ever felt like I didn't take positives out of any of my racing engineering performance engineering experiences. There was always good. There were always good things about it. Whereas if you ask me if there are many good things about working on the development of MP428, not many. I mean, there were you know friendships and. Uh, with my colleagues that are still going strong and, and all that, but in terms of the work, uh, it was just a lot of pain. <laughs> it was just a lot of pain. Because it, at one point, it, it, everything is so messed up that you're not even learning from anything because nothing works. It's You're stuck yeah. in a corner and nothing works. You're not even learning about anything. You're just learning about what not to do, you know? Which I guess can be valuable as well. No, that's super insightful. I think people will definitely love the podcast episode, Joao. Um, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Um, great question. Uh, LinkedIn. It's difficult. Just You're name. not very active. You're not very active on LinkedIn or Instagram, right? No, I'm not. I'm not very active <laughs> on anything, to be honest. It's. I mean, it's also about having time to be to be active. I, 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 the season is pretty full on. Um, I've got an Instagram where I uh, where I can actually get. I guess talk to me. Uh, it's one lap behind. Uh, I only post pictures there. I, I took pictures every now and then. So um, I think that's probably the easiest way. And um, yeah, but, but if you if you bug me on LinkedIn, I'll uh, I'll reply. Maybe I won't reply the next day, but I'll reply eventually. Sounds good, Joe. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was super super insightful. And maybe we'll have a second part in the future. Who knows? But uh, thank you so much for being on the show and. There's, I think, two more podcasts that you can find on YouTube, one on the Engine Breaking podcast and another one you did with a, with a younger guy. So make sure to check those out as well. Uh, yeah, I would say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, we also had our own, I also had my own podcast here. It's in Portuguese, so it's called Domingo. Um, there's a two seasons worth of it that if you want to go have a laugh. Um, there's a couple of episodes in English um, that might be good fun to listen to. Uh, it's one of them with, uh, with a guy called Blake Hinsey, who's from the Engine Breaking podcast. So he came on the show in, in English, and it's it's uh, nice. it's a cool show. He's a he's a he's a nice guy to hear about uh, F one and and uh, kind of the more technical side of it. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was uh, it was good fun, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it.
Sure. Take care, Joe. Cheers.